Alrighty, scripture reading for today. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 26 through 40. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silence in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he's not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. That's God's Word. Amen. Before we dismiss the kiddos, do a quick, you guys can be seated if you'd like. We're going to... Just mention a few prayer needs. Um, obviously, Ted kind of hobbling around a little bit. We'll be praying for him and quick healing. Um, the reason why Bob is not here, he's healing from a surgical procedure. And so just pray that everything was removed um, that was necessary and obviously that he would um, heal quick. Obviously, there's been a lot going on for him and his family. So just continued prayer for all of the Hapgood family. Um, Maui, we've seen the tragedy in Maui, um, and again, it just seems like one thing about global news is we just get tragedies all the time, so we could just have a list up here that would seemingly go on forever, but specifically, we just want to identify um, Maui today and pray for the fire victims as well, so pray with me. Father, we do again, we just recognize that you are the prayer-hearing God, um, we know that you hear us. And it's not just because we're good, we had a good week, or maybe we even had a bad week, but we pray in the name of Jesus. And so we can come before you knowing that you hear because of Jesus Christ. And so we just ask um, for each of these needs that we've mentioned, for the unmentioned needs in the congregation that exist in each heart here and in each um, home here, God, that you would meet the great longing and cries of our heart. Um, that you would come and help. So we just ask for Bob today, um, that you would continue to heal him, that all would be removed and he would get a good report back um, for, again, the many fire victims in Maui. We just ask um, for outpouring of support, both um, monetarily um, in their city and in their town there, especially the one that was hit so hard. And we pray for families that have lost loved ones, that you would comfort them and help them. And Father, that your churches would rise to the occasion and bring comfort, comforting words, um, 
helping hands and money for restoration. Um, We just ask for your blessing upon the rest of the service and upon what is spoken today, that you would speak through me, that the things that that I might say that would be off, um, that you would correct them in each heart, that the things that are true, that people would be encouraged and spurred on to believe what you have said um, in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, kiddos. Kate's down there today. So head on down if you'd like. Okay. Got another call in from the bullpen late last week. So we'll see what happens today. Again, we're in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 14 as we just read. And we have talked much of the Corinthian church and all the different issues and problems in the Corinthian church. It seems like just many of them. Paul just continues to just address different things over and over again. And in some ways, that's just a reminder that there's problems in every church because churches are made of people like you, people like me. And people can bring problems, which is why we worship the Lord Jesus Christ, right? That we just recognize that Jesus is king. He's the great forgiver of our sins and he's the great empowerer to help us to change. And the spirit works to do that. So Paul has been addressing here issues in the congregation. Remember, we've had factions. We've had sexual immorality. We've had um, just a general unlovingness in the way that the congregation went about their business, getting drunk on communion, um, class structure, kind of class warfare, looking down on the poor. And now we have just addressing this issue of hyper-spirituality. Hyper meaning they think that they are just the most spiritual people in the world and even in their midst. And especially in this group, in the verses before, you, you have much of the issue of prophecy and the issue of tongues. And that tongues was coming up a lot and that the tongue speakers were some of the super spiritual ones. And so we have this individualistic hyper-spirituality that these tongue speakers kind of had the highest gift was the perception. And even that there was probably a sense of kind of the uncontrollableness of the gathering of the church, that it was kind of out of control and chaotic and people speaking and doing various things that were resembling revelation in kind of an uncontrolled, frenetic way, kind of like a trance, potentially. We also see things like lack of submission to one another. Again, if it's individualistic and if we're all trying to be the super spiritual ones, we're not really going to care what the next one might think because what we have to say is most important. So there would have been kind of just a general, a lack of submission. We've seen that there's a lack of love, which is why 1 Corinthians 13, which again, we're used to seeing at marriage ceremonies or on cups and things like that. But 13 is smack dab in the middle of Paul addressing the issues in the Corinthian church and him reminding them, hey, when the spirit comes to work, the spirit works in love. So yes, When the Holy Spirit shows up, gifts will be given in the church, but it should all be within love. And so they were kind of thinking, well, the gifts are greater than love. 
What's most important is that I'm the one who's got the access to the Almighty God and I can kind of speak in my tongue and give my prophecy and have this great revelatory gift and that that's kind of what gives me the spiritual clout. We had things like um, that, that new revelation, that spontaneity was maybe even higher than the good news of the Gospel. So we see that. What does he mention in the next chapter? Again, trying to keep this whole thing in context. He goes right to the good news of Jesus as first importance and the fact that they didn't necessarily believe that because they wanted to raise maybe higher revelation and all of their great access as greater than the publicly revealed truth of Jesus Christ as the Word, the embodied Word from God. The most important message that we have to give. They also um, were probably resembling more of kind of a pagan disordered view of kind of a chaotic God. And so that would have been filtering through their midst. So again, those are some of the issues that that are happening. And just as kind of a quick bullet point, and then we're going to go through what the text has for us. But Paul is saying, hey, when when God shows up, God's presence in the church is going to look a certain way. So if there's a title, I would say, what God's presence in the church looks like. What God's presence in the church looks like. And so here are some of them. That all are empowered to manifest the Spirit. And we talked about how we can talk about this as spiritual gifts, but then that kind of gives too much credence to just the gift and not the giver. That gifts are just a manifestation that God is here. That God has come. And so one thing that he's focused on is showing that all can be empowered. Each one can be empowered in gifts. We also saw that what's important when God shows up is that prophecy can even be a higher category. Speaking the intelligible, understandable word from God and not just some kind of rampant tongue without a prophetic interpretation. That there's understanding when the spoken word of God happens. That there's this sense of kind of control not just out of control. There's, there's order to it when the Spirit shows up. There's a submitting to others. That submission we will see as a key theme in this area. And I was thinking of silence. The word silence comes up a lot in this section. So, it's not just this out of control thing. But there's kind of a silence of the Spirit. And I was thinking, as a culture, we're uncomfortable with silence. Like if I just said, hey, we're just going to take two minutes... And we're just going to be silent. I'm like, oh man, I've got to go do something. This is way too uncomfortable for me. Like that, like that three seconds was kind of rough. You know what I mean? But, but there's kind of, there, can be a, there can be a silence even in the work of the Spirit. Um, that love is the environment of the gifts. That that's the environment. That's the culture. The culture isn't the gifts. Love is the culture where the gifts come. That the Gospel is the highest revelation from God, what Paul says is of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15. And that there is the sense of the God of peace. That the God of peace is to be revealed in the church. And so that's what God's presence, the presence of the Holy Spirit specifically, God the Holy Spirit, in the church looks like that. So, we're going to go one by one a little bit. Verse 26. What then, brothers? 
So he's kind of done that before. He kind of asked a question to address a particular need. What then, brothers? And that, again, is since the brothers and sisters, everybody here in this congregation. When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. So first, look at when you come together. So that's what's happening here, right? They're coming together. That's a group of people. That's not just one person. There is a group here. There's a gathering of believers, like what happens on Sunday, right? We are coming together to worship, corporate worship. So an emphasis on the whole and not just a part, not just one. When you come together, when you all come together, each one, that each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. So we have the corporate sense of everybody comes, Then we have each one, so there's the individual, each one might have something to give. And not that each one has to give something, but just that the Spirit could show up and help each one do something. And so that 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 all are possible, but not necessary. So it's not always going to be that way, but that the possibility is there. Each one should come. So I would even say, when you show up to church, when you show up with a group of Christians at a church gathering, at a small group, whatever it is, Do you just come going, I am only coming to receive? It's just kind of me and God experience time now. Well, no, there should be a sense of in which, well, no. What might God give me also to build everybody up? And that God has empowered each one of us. What are some of the things that might come? And again, this isn't an exhaustive list. And even the gifts of the Spirit are not necessarily an exhaustive list. God could use several different ways. But but these are some of the ones that he mentions. Each one has a hymn. What's the word there? It comes from psalm. So this could be some churches. They might read a psalm from the Old Testament every Sunday. Each one has a psalm. We're going to read what has already been revealed. We're just going to read the book of Psalms. We're going to read a chapter you know, or, or a section. Each one might have a psalm. That, but that could also mean each one has been given a psalm, a song, a song to God. That, that, that certain people might come gifted to sing songs. Well, and as we know, there's worship songs that come all over the place, some better than others. But, but there's this sense in which, hey, God is going to give songs. You, you think even in the Psalms, there's that psalm about new songs being given. So some might come and sing, kind of like Jim mentioned today. So we're kind of saying, hey, everybody here, we might need some new psalm givers in a sense. And so may God work on our hearts for that. Next one, what's, what's the next one he mentions here? A lesson. So that's like teaching. Teaching, kind of like what I'm doing right now. But God might give some people to help teach and instruct the congregation. A revelation. So, again, that's a God may show a, he might reveal a mystery. This is probably a supernatural revealing of something that is normally hidden. This word actually comes from apocalypse. So like the book of Revelation you think of, like an apocalypse, that's a revealing, something hidden that's being disclosed, that's being revealed, something not normally there, supernaturally given. God can do that. God can give a person a revelation. You may say, well, I've had some weird experiences with that. Yes, you probably have. I have too. (laughs) They can get a little bit odd. But God can do it. God can give a revelation. It's never going to contradict the highest revelation of the good news of the gospel or something else in Scripture. We'll get to that later. But there's a sense in which God might give, wow, a supernatural word to someone. Something hidden that would be revealed. 
Um, and of course, we see that earlier um, when, when like a prophetic word is given and what happens to the unbeliever. They're like convicted. They're called to account. What in the world? God must be here. How did you know that? God shows up. I was just really struck. It, it, it's not in um, our section today, but just that verse right before and declare that God is really among you. Not just this was kind of a club meeting to come hang at it and to kind of be a part of. The church is supposed to be where God can actually show up. And when people leave, they might go, I cannot explain what happened there except for God must exist. He must be real. His presence is active. Next one, a tongue. We kind of talked about how we've seen. um, There's some debate on this. But a supernatural empowering of, of speech a different tongue. In the book of Acts, remember they think everybody's drunk and then they hear actual languages. So a language you didn't learn from your, whatever that app is called, your learning language app. But, what? Okay. Well, well, I'm talking about, oh, oh, is there an app called Babel? Okay, anyway. Well, okay. If there is, it shows how up to date I am. Point is, is, is you didn't get this learning of a language from memorizing it and sitting through an instruction. But you, God gave it to you. And you actually spoke Chinese, you know, or whatever it might be. It could also be a spiritual language, like a mystery, um, that then God might reveal. So that God can, can, can do that. Give a supernatural gift of a known tongue or a unknown spiritual tongue to a person. And then, interpretation. Explaining the, what the tongue is to actually be able to Interpret it so it can then become intelligible. So you have what might be unintelligible in the congregation given. And then as, as we see, there must be something intelligible spoken for understanding must happen. And then we have the goal here. What's the goal? That last sentence. Look at that one in verse 26. Let all things be done for building up. Edification. Every single gift It should be building up the church. The gifts that are given here in whatever expression should be for the the building up of the church. The strengthening of the church. This is kind of an architectural term. Kind of like what you had at the first part of 1 Corinthians. To make the building stronger. To make it more complete. That is what God gives for His people through the spiritual gifts. I was thinking, you know, like a, like a building site. Like if nobody was working together and one hammer was like, I'm the best hammer in the world, you know, or whatever, or, or I'm the drill user or whatever, and they're all just kind of doing separate things, not for the sake of the whole building, you're going to have a giant mess. But so the, the, all of the gifts that are given are to build up the church in a stronger, more complete way. And I was thinking, oh, that's interesting. We just actually mentioned Babel, which is interesting, because I was thinking about Babel in the Bible. So what were they doing? They were constructing right a building, this tower to God, um, or to kind of show how great they were and their pride in the great things that they can build and make. And yet, there's a verse, or, or edification has this sense of construction and structure, and God is kind of reversing what happened at Babel through the gifts of the Spirit. So, of course that's what's happening, because you even have interpretation of language given to help everybody work together toward the goal, Right? So, this, so what happens when the Holy Spirit comes is He reverses the confusion, the chaos of what happened, all the separation that occurred at Babel. 
That's what happens when Pentecost, when the Spirit shows up. It is a reversal of Babel. So it is to be building up and encouraging and a bringing together of all kinds of people, different classes, different races, different languages, that the church would be the place that is the building, the dwelling place, right? The tabernacle, the place where God dwells. That's the picture of the church. So the goal of all these gifts is for everyone. It's for you to show your great access to God but to build everybody up. So no superstar Christians, right? No super spiritual ones. No celebrity Christians that are higher than everybody else. And that the gifts are the manifestations of the Spirit to show that God is present to strengthen everyone else, to strengthen one another in their walk with Jesus, and then to show the world, to convict sinners that God is real that He is real and that He is active and that He is present in this world. That's what the church is supposed to be. Verse 27. So he gets a little more specific. That's kind of just kind of the general thing, right? you got the general things that might come up, gifts that might be given, manifestations of the Spirit, and then kind of bam, the goal. Let all things, let all that, anything that happens in your midst be done for the building up. Then he kind of gets into some specific things that are going on. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three and each in turn and let someone interpret. So again, if any, so everybody might, or, or meaning every, there, everyone of the group, there might be a person that speaks in a tongue or a few people. So not again, just that maybe the special tongue speakers. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at the most three. So again, this isn't just going to dominate the entire service, but there might be a few there. And then each in turn. So, you can't just have one person speaking in a tongue over here and then somebody else speaking in a tongue over there and then it just turns into this big chaos of tongues happening. Like, wow, what is going on here? This looks a little frenzied to me. This is wild and chaotic. No, he's saying that, that there should be in, they should be in turn. So there's this sense of control to it. Not just this uncontrollable Trance given and then everybody kind of experiences it and then you just saw a bunch of chaos happen. But that there is a sense of control. Take your turn. Okay. Yep. Okay. You got one. Okay. Go for it. All right. You got another one. All right. You go for it. But let's kind of, this is supposed to be, there's an, there's an, there's an order here. And then let someone interpret. We have saw, saw that in the verses before of how important to Paul um, that the interpretation of tongues was. Like he says in verse 19. Look at that. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Now, there's the greatest show-off of high spiritual tongues in the world. You can have 10,000 of those, just ridiculous, in compared to just five words. I've had a lot of words already. But just five that you can actually understand in your mind. So interpretation is critical. Verse 28, if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. So if no one is there to interpret the tongue, be quiet. Shut up. Ooh. That's kind of a, that's alerting. That's a strong word. 
Speak to yourself. Focus on you and God. And sometimes people talk about the gift of tongues also as just a way of kind of self-edification, a you and God kind of thing, especially if it's not being interpreted. So that word silent, which comes up a little later, which everybody's probably waiting for, that particular section that jolted everybody. Um, but right here, he's telling some of them to keep silent. So not just later. when He's talking about the women issue, which we'll get to. But he's saying, hey, you also, tongue speakers, whoever you are, you need to keep silence and speak to yourself and God if there's not going to be an interpreter. So sometimes the Spirit works to keep us silent. Verse 29. Let two or three prophets speak. So now he moves. Now he's done with tongues for a second. Now he's going to move to prophets. And he's already said that prophecy should be pursued in a big way. He's obviously shown how prophecy is even higher than tongues, especially uninterpreted tongues. But he has some instruction here too. He's not just picking on the tongue speakers. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So again, you have this emphasis on others. Again, it's not just this individualistic expression. You have this giant emphasis on other people. Hey, if you're going to speak in the tongue and nobody's interpret, you better keep silent because this is about everybody. And if two or three prophets speak, let others weigh what is said. So here we have again that the prophets, there's a sense of control. There's a sense of orderliness. That there will be evaluation, discernment, distinguishing. There's this picture in this word of, of sundering, separating. That, that, that the prophecy is to be tested by others. It's not just, hey, what I said is from God and it does not matter what you guys think. I'm the one who's got the access to God. Know that there's actually this group that tests it. That weighs what is being said. Verse 30. If a revelation is made to another, and again, this probably has the same thing to do with prophecy, this revelation that is given. And in fact, one, there's my little note here, kind of gave a, a good, um, what I thought, definition of prophecy. And again, there is some debate on what exactly prophecy is. Some people just want to focus on just preaching, that it's kind of preaching. I don't personally think that, that makes sense of this. Um, I like what one scholar says here. A prophecy was certainly not a sermon by 20th century standards. So like what I'm doing right now is probably not prophecy. It was a spontaneous utterance prompted by the Spirit and based on a sudden and uncontrived revelation from God. Because you got revelation and prophecy kind of tied together. It was controllable by the speaker, however, and thus was unlike pagan ecstatic utterances of the Dionysiac sort. You know, scholars, again, like to use fancy language, but all that is referring to is a Greek god, the son of Zeus, the god of wine, the god of ecstasy, which would have also been well known at this particular time. It wasn't just kind of this ecstatic utterance, but was controllable, but was coming from God. And he says, in Christian prophecy, both the mind and the spirit are edified. So, if one prophesies, let two or three prophets speak, let everybody else kind of weigh, evaluate what is said, and then, oh, another, somebody else got a revelation. Um, they're sitting there. Let the first be silent. So again, there's silence again. Silence again. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Again, his focus here, he doesn't just want everybody just kind of going wild. Right? He wants there to be an orderliness to this. You can all prophesy, but again, you've got to do it one by one here. This is for the building up of everybody. This isn't just 
to show your spiritual flash. So that all may learn. So there's learn. There's intelligibility. Understand. Right? So that we all can understand what is said and all be encouraged. That's tied to edification. Right? To all what we just talked about before. To be strengthening the building. Strengthening the church. And there's also this sense of exhortation with this word. Kind of this spurring on to action. That a prophetic word should spur us on to the Lord Jesus Christ. Spur us on to continue in the Christian faith. Kind of the sense I can think of like, of like coaching to spur somebody on. Keep going. Learn better. Improve the skill. Being exhorted to help the group on a team. So if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be encouraged, exhorted to keep going, trusting Jesus, strengthened in Jesus. That is the focus of Christian worship. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. So again, it's not just one. It's subject to other prophets in the midst. Hey, is this really from God? And subject... Thinking about that word, submission. Again, as we get into some of these verses on the way here, who else is told to submit? Who else is told to be silent? Prophets are also told the same thing. You need to be submitting to one another. We want to make sure that this is, that this is God. I was thinking, like, in our culture, submission is not a happy word. Right? We live in an I-self culture, which we've talked about a lot. And submission is not like a high-ranking virtue in our culture at all. Now, in some ways, because of abuses, there can be reasons for that. But again, abuse does not kick out the fact that submission is a Christian virtue. All the way through. All the way through the book of the Bible, we see submission as a godly Christian thing. Why? We submit to the Lord Jesus. It's not just about me and what I think and my self-expression and everything else. I'm called to submit to Jesus. We're called to submit to one another. I think that's in Ephesians. And it talks about different roles and in the home and things of submission. But just generally, every Christian is called in some way to be subject. And so prophets are to be subject to other prophets. It's not just about you. Verse 33, the reason for, right? That's the reason. God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. This is all about God. Everything that happens in our midst is supposed to be about God. For the phrase God-centered, we're to be a God-centered people. Not ultimately self-centered. Not even ultimately other-centered. Yes, self and then others. But then God. The whole point is God and His character. The character of God should look like the character of the church. If it's a pagan festival, it's going to look like paganism. Right? It's going to look like this wild festival of wine and revelry and people doing whatever they want, just kind of chaos. But in the Christian festival, in the Christian church, it should look like God. And who is God? God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Interesting here is this is kind of tied back to some of what was happening at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, like different factions that would show up and kind of the sense of, of um, upheaval. And there's kind of a political tone. One scholar puts it this way. The term discord 
recalls the political metaphor of the civic body torn apart by strife that Paul employed earlier. Thus, Paul evokes the two popular images of discord most feared in the antiquity, religious and political. So religious and political upheaval would have been a big deal. If he had succeeded in persuading the audience that their gatherings could be mistaken for either or both of these types of disorder, then Paul has made a powerful case for reforming the order of worship. That this kind of disorder, and again, we even think about what happened to the church the last several years with political issues. God is a God of peace. And our allegiance is to be to King Jesus before any other political issue. We are not a political body. We are the people of King Jesus. And so he is not a fan, meaning God, of political and religious disorder in his church. So we need to hear that. That needs to kind of sit on us and weigh on us in the way in which we interact together. And as a church, and not just our church, our interactions with other people and other churches as well. That we are the people of, of King Jesus, who is a God of peace and bringing people together. He's, the rever- again, the reversal of Babel. That's what the Spirit's about. A unity. As in all the churches of the saints. So you see how that's at the end of verse 33. So there's questions here. Of this, As in all the churches of the saints, is that supposed to go with what he just said, everything that we just talked about? Or is that supposed to go with the next thing about women? And again, it could be either way. It could be both. Who knows? The, the ESV, I think, is making a translation issue because you can even see how, where do they put that? They don't put it right after peace in that paragraph. They put it with the um, issue of women. As in all the churches of the saints. Verse 34. The, um, 34 and 35, we're going to do this together. The women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak but should be in submission as also the law as the law also says if there is anything they desire to learn let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church and this is when people nowadays want to leave and run for the hills um, so there is a lot on this particular topic and I did not have a lot of time <laughs> this 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 particular week but I think that there's a few things that, um, that, um, that um, we can look at here. First of all, whenever a topic comes like this, if it kind of upsets us because of cultural norms, big deal. Whenever we have, a, like we should not be surprised at verses from the Bible upsetting our cultural norms. Right? When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, that upsets us. Wait, the Christian life is supposed to be a life of the cross and denying self? I'm not a fan. There's nothing in my culture that says I should be a fan of that particular verse. Let's kind of say Jesus didn't say that, which, of course, he did. But so whenever we have something that might kind of upset us, we need to take a second and go, do we believe that this is God's word? Yes or no? Yes, we do. So we need to accept it, right? We need to believe it. We need to do what it says. And we should not be surprised if it upsets a particular culture we're a part of. Just like when Paul's writing this, they're going to be upset because of all that's going on in their culture, right? Gods and worship and shrines and everything else. They're not going to be real happy with the way that Paul lays all this out. It's going to frustrate them. But he's saying, hey, you're a different people. You are different than the world. So, I think that's just kind of a general thing to come with. But, the next thing is, there are textual challenges to this. 
And here is what I mean by that. First of all, you have in 1 Corinthians 11.5, you have Paul saying on the head covering issue. Remember that? There's that, again, if you didn't read it, 1 Corinthians 11 talks about head coverings and women in head coverings. Well, in 11.5, it says this. So what I mean by a textual challenge, this isn't just challenging to come at us because of our culture, right? This is challenging because of, wait a second. Sounds like Paul said something different, like not long ago at all. So in 1 Corinthians 11.5, it said, Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, so we're not going to talk about that today, but the point is, women are praying and prophesying. So within the letter itself, he said, okay, wait, wait, well, what is it, Paul? Are, are women prophesying in church or not? Well, I think it's very clear that they are. That they are. And actually, I would even make one just kind of side comment. Like we have talked about how people can come up here and do the Apostles' Creed and Scripture reading and things like that. I just want to encourage you, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, you were invited to do that. We've said that before. Of course, it's not just going to be out of the blue. You would let us know. But we want there to be other people up here, again, than just us or just me. Sometimes I get kind of frustrated. Like, well, I'm going to do announcements and then like, all you're seeing is my face. Kind of look at this first Corinthians. You go, well, there should be other people <laughs> happening in the church gathering. So, um, you already have Paul. So it's not just a challenge because of some cultural issue. It's Paul has said women can prophesy. You also have Acts 2. In Acts 2, when Pentecost happened, the prophecy of Joel was that your sons and your daughters would prophesy. So one of the marks of the Holy Spirit, the dawn of the Spirit's activity in the church, was daughters. Women are going to be prophesying. Okay? So you also have that happening. Later in Acts, you have Philip um, and Philip's daughters prophesying. So, Paul and the New Testament tradition is not against women prophesying, which again is a big thing. That's a progressive move by Paul. And even think about Jesus' attitude towards women being involved and some of them probably even helping support his ministry. And you go down the list. We've talked about the resurrection during Easter and the women as the first witnesses. You just go down the list. All over the place, women are active in the church. Okay. So, but again, there's kind of a textual challenge. There's also, there's a bunch of textual criticism stuff which has to do with like manuscripts and, and actually there's some issues with this particular section. Where does it go? Like there's one manuscript that I guess has it at the end of verse 40. So when some people kind of want to go, well, because you may not know where it is, maybe Paul didn't say it. And they kind of just throw it out. And you can read scholars that say that. I don't think that that's the correct thing to do. Um, and most, sometimes if you have a textual issue, you'll have like a footnote and it might say something like, hey, in the earliest manuscripts, fasting wasn't there, you know, or something like that. Um, and so the point is, is yes, there's, some, there, there's a little bit of question about where it might line up, but it sure seems like Paul has written this and that God has something to say to us through this. Um, also, cultural reasons there of kind of, so what was going on? So then how do we make sense of this? So is it be silent and don't talk or is it what you just said a little bit, bit ago with, yeah, women are going to prophesy and they're going to pray in the church. It's probably because there's something that we need to take in context right here and what he's talking about here. So there's a few things. There are some cultural things that were happening. And I even found this. There are, we are not a church that believes in women's ordination. We believe that, 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 that God is called qualified men, not every man, qualified men to lead and govern the church as pastors and elders. That's what we believe as a church. A lot of reasons for that. We can't get into all those today. There are other churches that don't believe that. 
we think that that's wrong. We don't think that that means they're not Christians, but we don't think that that's the way that the church is structured. Um, so, some of the culture that that were happening is, is I was even reading on people that believe the other thing and scholars from the other side for women's ordination, they still point to cultural issues that were happening. So there was an oracle of Delphi. Um, and this is from the Encyclopedia Britannica. One of the most famous ancient oracle believed to deliver prophecies from the Greek god Apollo. She was based in his temple at Delphi, located on the slopes of Mount Parnassus above the Corinthian Gulf. Which book are we reading? First Corinthians. The oracle who at first was called Pytho and later Pythia reached the height of her fame. Again, this was many years before the first century, but also was after the first century. And I think by the second century, century it was starting to fade out. But a little bit further in here. According to tradition, the oracle first belonged to Mother Earth, Gaia, but later was either given to or stolen by Apollo. The Delphic medium was a woman who, who over 50 who lived apart from her husband and dressed in maiden's clothes. And then it kind of goes on. Upon her death, a new priestess would be chosen. The selection process is uncertain. Point is, again, we got prophecy here. We got women leading here. We have a Delph, this Delphic medium and priest chosen according to um, after one would die. She was very influential, so much so that several wars were waged over the oracle. Anyway, so point is, you got something going on here with women, with prophecy in this particular area. So that might be one reason why Paul is highlighting that is because of some of what was happening there. Um, one of the most helpful ones that I thought, and again, there's, there's so much on this particular thing, but I'm really just trying to help us here to understand this. I'm just going to read one commentator that I thought was really helpful on, on a particular perspective on what is happening here. And I'm just going to read this section. So try to hang with me. I've got to try to wrap up soon. Patient exegesis suggests a more probable explanation on the assumption that Paul wrote these difficult verses. Since the section here concerns prophecy and the immediate context concerns the sifting of prophetic speech, the admonition to curb speech of a certain kind almost certainly refers to contributions from women who seek to join in the sifting or testing of a claim to speak with prophetic authority. What kind of situation would make such speech out of order? This would be exacerbated if the test of daily conduct were cited as undermining such a claim and if there were any thought of ganging up of woman power to rule a male prophet out of order. We can only speculate on the nature of the situation. Again, that's important. Some of this is speculation about what's happening, even what I just read, but we're trying to piece together what might have been happening then. Then, um, We can only speculate on the nature of the situation, but it is not difficult to imagine scenarios in which the opportunity to take a speaker down a peg might be open to abuse and undermine order. Ben Witherington, that's a scholar, similarly imagines the women asking perhaps inappropriate questions in the testing of prophecy and the worship service was being disrupted. The hypothesis that some women raise questions about prophetic speech from their own husbands becomes more plausible in light of verse 35. They want to learn anything, let them interrogate the husbands at home. Paul shows concern not only for respect between husband and wife in public and at home, but also for the effect of ordered or disordered worship upon outsiders or unbelievers. Using public worship as an extension of tensions in the home would have disastrous effects, especially if initiated by the woman, and again, especially in that culture. Witherington observes if women were laying down the law or judging their husband's prophecy by leading questions, worship might become a family feud. Again, we have this tie-in. Remember, he mentions specifically husbands, so there's probably a concern also about the role in the home. What does the Bible say in Ephesians? 
Women, excuse me, not women, wives are to submit to husbands. That's what the Bible says. Submission. That's the role that's to be in the home. Again, that's not submission to things that are false, to things that are abusive, to things that are not what the Bible says. Absolutely not. You were to submit to King Jesus, but still that there is an order in the home. We believe that's what the Bible teaches. There's also an order in the church. And you might have had other governing authorities in this church or elders or whatever. Um, so it, it, it could be that they were also maybe asking questions because, again, you have Wayne here. There's probably questions happening within the midst. And even in Delphi and the Oracle, there would be a lot of questions and answers to try to get what the Oracle was saying. So there's, there's probably this tie-in here of, hey, he's saying, hey, that should not be happening. You should not be having um, disorder in the home or in the church. As opposed to just women, you don't get to prophesy. Because he just said you did two chapters before. Okay, uh, there's probably a lot more on that, but we don't have time for that. Um, Women should keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. Again, probably a reference to um, Genesis, and again, order and structure um, of, of man created first, women created second, women speaking of a home life as a helper to the man, but both being created equally in the image of God, which is why it doesn't say man is created in the image of God and women is not. No, both are created in the image of God. So this isn't a, a thing of value, but it's a thing of role in church and in home. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? So, he's probably going back to Corinth here, and even on this, there's some, what is this referring to exactly? But this is probably tying into everything. That he's saying, hey, Corinthians, you guys in all your fancy revelation, you men and women that are prophesying and all the different things that are happening within your midst, you are not the only ones who got it figured out. Other churches do. You're not just the source of divine authority. Right? So don't get all hung up on how super spiritual, spiritual you are. He's... It's, it's a rebuking question. It's a sarcastic question. If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So again, all you prophets in the community, this is Paul speaking, guess what? I am the apostolic authority. I am the apostle. I am the one... Um, and, and what I have to say matters. What I write to you is a command of the Lord. The other prophecies are not to disagree with that. Sounds familiar, right? If somebody says something that doesn't disagree with what the Bible says, we should reject it. And so Paul is saying, hey, you are not recognized if you reject what I have said. So, my brothers, earnestly desire prophecy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So, what we need to remember in this is even with all of this orderliness and, and all these, hey, you can kind of be silent and kind of do it in order and all that kind of stuff, there's still this sense of earnestly desire. And so, we must be careful with out of orderliness to then reject it. Because he's saying this can happen. This should happen. You should earnestly desire to prophesy. Everybody here should say, hey, God, you could speak to me. You could help me in a situation. You could use me to speak to somebody else in an earnest, zealous desire, not a squelching desire. 
And then do not forbid speaking in tongues. And actually, Paul probably could have forbid it because of all the problems that seem to happen because of everything that he's been saying about tongues the whole time. But he's saying, hey, do not forbid this. Again, an abuse of something does not take away what is originally intended. That is really, really important. Abuse is not an excuse for no use. Right? Just because something is abused. Um, and abuse, of course, is always wrong. Um, but it doesn't take away if there is some amount of truth. Just because something, you know, just because you have a situation in a church where there's been a pastor who has, you know, maybe taken advantage of the congregation in some way, that doesn't mean all pastors are bad. We love to highlight all that stuff in the news. But, an abuse, hey, God is still called. God is still given church. God is still given all these different issues. God has given fathers and mothers. And just because there is abuse doesn't mean the good thing goes away, right? So he's saying, do not forbid it. So we should not forbid speaking in tongues. In this church, that's what Paul just said right there. We should not. But all things should be done decently and in order. Okay. All things should be done decently and in order. Decently like decorum, decoration, modestly, and in order. That's what he's been talking about this whole time. In order. This isn't just some uncontrolled thing. And why? Because that shows who God is. That shows the kind of God that God is. That's what this is about. Our church should look like the character of God. God's presence in the church looks like what everything that we have just read and gone over. And I was thinking that there's this whole thing of in intelligibility and lack of understanding and kind of craziness that kind of was in this community. I was just thinking, you know, God is clear about His Word. And the clearest expression of His Word that He has given, is, of course, Scriptures, but is in bodily form, is the person of Jesus Christ. The good news and the message of the Gospel. That He has proclaimed His Word in a person. It's not hidden. It is revealed. It's not some mystery. It's not... Um, we are not people who kind of have the secret access to God that we just kind of cluster up and hide it from everybody. It's not a conspiracy theory. We're not like a secret society. Like the whole gospel message is public truth for everyone. God is revealing to all of the nations, I am God. I have sent my Son into the world to save you, to bring you all of the longings of your heart for, for unity, for home, for belonging, for forgiveness. You go down the list. All of those longings that you have can be satisfied in God. And so, the Word of God is clear and God has proclaimed it. He has not left us alone. He has spoken in Jesus Christ. He has brought peace. That's what Jesus came to do. Say, you human beings are rebels in general. You rejected me from the garden all the way on. Did I just leave you? Did I say, hey, you climb up to me? No, God Climb down. He went down to us to save us, to rescue us, to, to um, bridge the breach. Uh, and it's fully on His side. It's not on our side. Out of grace, He came down to bring peace, to reconcile the community. And that this community would be a place of reconciliation, which is why it's such a big deal on communion and how upset Paul was earlier about the way communion was being abused. It's supposed to be a thing about unity about the body and blood of Jesus gathering people together. And so that's what we celebrate now, is how God has brought peace to us 
no matter what your week was like, no matter what you did or didn't do, to be reminded of the good news that there is peace in and only in, ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate His body and His blood together in all of our different giftings, all of our different ways of going about life um, that God has come to bring us together. So that's what we are going to do in communion.
1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen. God bless you this week.
that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me. Until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him.